So how did you celebrate Back to the Future Day? It's hard to believe that the 21st of October 2015 is where Michael J. Fox headed off to in Back to the Future 2. And all over social media this week, everybody was reflecting on Back to the Future Day. I've talked about those DeLorean cars many times and where I would like to go back to if I had a DeLorean car probably this morning that 6-1 win at Old Trafford a couple of years ago is in my mind with the afternoon ahead of us. But he came here to 2015. We thought it was so far in the future that none of us would be alive, never mind able to sit down and say what came true and what didn't come true. The exciting thing for me in the midst of it all was that when it happened on the 21st, the Cubs, the Chicago Cubs were still in with a chance of the World Series. Now, it's 1902 since the Chicago Cubs have won the World Series, as far as my baseball knowledge reckons. And in 1989, in Back to the Future 2, the suggestion was made against all the odds that the Cubs would win the World Series in 2015. And when the day began, they still had a chance. But when the day finished... Back to the Future 2 could be ripped up because it had no idea what happened in the future. They got trounced. Back to the Future. It's up there with my favourite movies. Shawshank probably gets it because it's a little bit more robust and deeper and all of that. But Back to the Future. I just love the Back to the Future movies. I love the doc. And they did some great stuff that came out on Facebook this week of the two of them together again. Um, doing different... Uh, Ads, which comes into play a little bit later on in the sermon. The doc, great Scott. Michael J. Fox, was he not the coolest dude in the world at that time? And when he hit that guitar chord and went right back in the first one, John Trinder dreamed it was him. The idea of going back in time fascinated me. So for them to work out what it was like in 1955, what it was like in 2015, fantastic. Back to the Future, some of her favourite movies. And Neil in his blog this week talked about that future part of it. Doc Brown says, your future hasn't been written yet. No one's has. Your future is whatever you make it. So make it a good one. Your future hasn't been written yet. No one's has. Your future is whatever you make it, so make it a good one. Now I'm looking at babies around the place and I'm thinking they have a wee bit more chance than some of the rest of us. But whatever your future is, one of the things Back to the Future teaches us is that even the minutiae of decisions we make now will have their implications down the road. I think it might have been the same year or certainly not long after when Delamitri sang, look into the mirror, do you recognize someone? Is it who you always hoped you would become when you were young? And to become the person you want to be means making decisions now for your future. And some of us already, even in this sermon, even in the heat of the building where you're thinking, oh, this would be a good time to doze off, you're thinking about the decisions you made 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, some of us even longer. And you're thinking, I'm living the consequences. And some of us, this is a future 
there still is a future. So that's an interesting challenge. It's a byproduct, really, of what I want to say today. Why Back to the Future struck me as I read Mark chapter 10. Was it in my contrived way, the way that I look at contemporary culture and bring that to caress and collide with the scriptures, I couldn't help but see the two of them this week as I read chapter 10 of Mark as almost a conversation about the ending of Back to the Future 1. It was my mate David Montgomery who drew my attention to this because I was so taken up with the feel-good factor of the first Back to the Future that I missed it. How does it end? He goes back in time to make his future better than it might be in 1985. And so he goes back and he does a lot of things and suddenly he's back. Remember that moment where the lightning hits the tower and that DeLorean doesn't hit a wall but actually lands back into 1985 and the drunk guy doesn't drink anymore because he can't believe just what he's seen. And Marty gets out of the DeLorean and heads home to see how life is and there it is. The future that he's almost created by going back in time is all his. And what is it? His father is successful. His sci-fi book has made it. They are rich, they are wealthy, and he can take his pickup and drive to the house by the lake with his lovely, beautiful girlfriend. It is the American dream. Success, wealth, and having a cool father. Mark chapter 10 kind of challenges that a wee bit. Now, let me give you a little bit of context into this. This section that we're coming to the end of, and not us, but in the reading of today, at the end of chapter 10, start it way back in chapter 8, where there was another healing of a blind man. And um, people would call this stretch from uh, chapter 8, verses 22, right through to the end of chapter 10, as the way. And this other blind man back in chapter 8, Jesus heals him, but he doesn't really get his sight fully back, and Jesus has to almost give it another lash. And uh, some people have said, does that mean that this one at the end of that section says, well, Jesus has improved his healing skills at this point? We don't think that's what's going on here. But what might be going on here in Mark's editorial is that Mark might be saying that this whole biography of his is this coming to an understanding of who Jesus is. That the insight into the person and the identity of Jesus is developing as we go and that blind Bartimaeus is the part of the story where we find out that full identity of Jesus in this healing story. It's a blind beggar, one of the least of these. And we know from reading these Gospels that Jesus is more interested in the least of these than he is in those who've had the perfect ending with the book deal, the house by the lake, and the cool father. Here's another blind beggar, Bartimaeus, son of impurity. And he wants to do some business with Jesus. And the crowds try to keep him away because he's that kind of guy that you don't want messing with Jesus because he's out there in the fringe. Nobody needs to pay him any attention because why would we? And yet it's this blind Bartimaeus who sees it in its fullest way. My granny had many phrases. And it's interesting, I don't know about yourselves or whether your granny was as poetically influential as mine was because she really never left the cottage in Gilgorm, certainly in the years that she was looking after me. Maybe not even to the nearest shop. But she had all these phrases that 40 years later, that doesn't mean I'm 40, by the way, that 40 years later, 45 years later, 
they're coming back to me. And my favorite phrase of my grannies, and the girls are getting fed up with my granny's phrases because I repeat them all the time. My favorite of all of her phrases was, I see, said the blind man who couldn't see at all. I love that phrase. I got it when I was a six-year-old. I thought that's genius. I see, said the blind man who couldn't see at all. And when I was doing it this week, I was thinking, that now I'm trying to work back and thinking, was my granny at a really good Sunday school lesson in Trinity O'Hochel one morning when the guy teaching them about blind Bartimaeus said to them, do you see this blind Bartimaeus story? Well, basically what it is is, I see, said the blind man, who couldn't see at all. Because blind Bartimaeus sees it. Beyond the others, he gets it. He goes beyond the back to the future ending that John and James were looking for in the preceding passage. James and John have come to Jesus and Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And James and John are saying, I want to be successful. I want the book deal. I want the house by the lake. I want the cool father, Jesus. I want position. I want to be sitting with you. I want to be the person that everybody else respects. And Jesus says that is not the deal at all. And Mark shifts immediately to the person that you would least expect to know what they want. And he asks him exactly the same question. What do you want me to do for you? And blind Bartimaeus, who already has given the insight by this point, that we'll come to in a second, says, Rabbi, I want to see. And yes, he wants to see physically. But this story is about much more than the physical. Because blind Bartimaeus is the first person in the entire gospel that calls Jesus the son of David. They're just about to go into Jerusalem. They're just about to head for where the Messiah is going to do his business. And this is the moment in this biography of Jesus where Mark declares through blind Bartimaeus the full identity of Jesus. He is the son of David. He is the Messiah from the Old Testament. He is coming to do something incredible. It's a blind beggar called the son of impurity at the side of the road who gets it. He sees, even though at the point he sees the spiritual, he couldn't see at all. I was drawn back not to my granny this time, but this is like my life story. Starts with my granny in a cottage in Gilgorm, gets into the 80s, we back to the future, and then I find myself in those same 80s with John Dixon as my boss in First Antrim. And John Dixon used to constantly go back to Solomon in <coughs> Second Chronicles 1. Verse 7 in Second Chronicles 1. That night God appeared to Solomon, and God said, What do you want from me? Ask. The question that John and James got from Jesus. The question blind Bartimaeus got from Jesus. It's not a New Testament question because God was asking Solomon that way back in Second Chronicles chapter 1. What does Solomon answer? I want the successful book deal. I want the position. I want the money. I want the house at the lake. I want the pickup truck. I want the American dream. Solomon answered, you were extravagantly generous with David, my father, and now you have made me king in his place. Establish, God, the words you spoke to my father, for you have given me a staggering task ruling this mob of people. Yes, give me wisdom and knowledge as I come and go among this people. For, those, for who on his own is capable of leading these your glorious people? 
What did Solomon ask for? He didn't ask for a back to the future ending. He didn't ask with James and John for that successful uh, or that place and position. Solomon asks for wisdom and knowledge, insight, to be able to see, to be able to see into the world's issues and how we respond to them, to be able to see into our family issues and how we respond to them. As I keep saying as a minister, every Tuesday morning, I pray that I will have the wisdom and knowledge to slalom the genius and madness that is out in front of me at this moment in time. Wisdom, knowledge, insight, to know the important issues of life. So what do we want God to do for us? Even in the church, is it not true that we want him to be a bit of a Santa Claus? To give us our American dream? To get us the right exam results? To get the right place at university? To get the right degree? To get onto the PhD? To get the right job? To get the promotion? Are those the things that we're more praying about than what Solomon asked for? Or what blind Bartimaeus saw? I wanted to get Chris to sing a song this morning. You can go home and if you wish you can play it. It's a song by a guy called Derek Webb and it's called Wedding Dress. It's an incredibly prophetic song. It's a challenge to the book of Jabez that came out uh, about 10 years ago in America and sold millions of copies, which was basically a prayer that David Wilkinson, who you might know from the cross and the switchblade, basically said, if you pray this prayer enough, you'll become rich and get the back to the future ending. And Derek decided that that really wasn't biblically sound at all and went and wrote this song called Wedding Dress, which he has a few words that are a little earthy in it. And so we had great debate over the entire weekend. Could Fitzroy deal with a couple of earthy words? And we decided in sensitivity that we wouldn't put you through a couple of earthy words. But that means you miss these lines that I think are incredibly powerful. In the middle of this song, Derek Webb, who's basically saying, we're all blind beggars, sons of impurity, daughters of impurity. And God gives us the wedding dress. It's a mark of grace. It's not because of who we are, our position. It's not because of our back to the future ending. It's not because we're James and John. It's not because we've kept all the rules of the rich young ruler, which is the passage just before James and John. He says that it's God's grace and that we're all messed up. But he says these lines. He says, I have a hand in a pot of gold and a hand in your side. Now, in the context of the song, That's far more powerful than the way I'm saying it now. But it jumps out at you. I have my hand in a pot of gold and a hand in your side. I actually have a hand in James and John because I want the position. I want the success. And I've got a hand in your side like blind Bartimaeus had just needing to see insight from where he was coming from. I want a back to the future ending, but I really want to be a Christian. I really want to follow Jesus. I want to follow Jesus, but please don't make me give this up. What do you want God to do for you? What do we as a congregation want God to do for us? I want to close by the other part of this passage that is all wrapped up and around it. The disciples, the Fitzroy community around Bartimaeus and Jesus, if we want to go there, Try to keep blind Bartimaeus away from Jesus. Be quiet. He doesn't want to talk to you. He's got business to do. 
He's seeing people here. He's talking to James and John about who's going to be first and who's going to be last. And he's got a rich young ruler just down the road that's just left him and he might want to go back to him. Blind Bartimaeus, you're the son of impurity. You just stay out there. We're not welcoming you in to our community. It reminded me of a book by Mike Riddell called Insatiable Moon. Again, you need a strong Christian stomach to be able to read it, but it's very prophetic stuff. In this book, which has now become a movie, which is different than the novel a little bit, Mike Riddell, who used to be a Baptist minister in uh, New Zealand, but wrote this book and brought it. He was a professor in a Baptist college, and he brought it to the principal, and he said to the principal, can I publish this book? And the principal said, you need to publish this book, but when you publish the book, you need to resign from the job you have now. Um, And one of the things that he says in this book, one of the powerful things in this book, is that there's a youth group going out to do some personal evangelism. And they're sent out into the local community. And one of the men's up in the local park. If you want to imagine they're in the park behind the Crescent. Why did we not just go there? But now we have these halls, it's great. But that's a nice location with a wee park outside it. We don't have a park behind us. So anyway, they go to the Crescent, the park behind the Crescent. And as happens in the park behind the Crescent, if you've been through it in recent days, there's a drunk Trump sitting in the corner. And this wee, eager, energetic, 17-year-old evangelist sits down beside him on the, (coughs) the seat and starts to share the scriptures with him. And before very long, it turns in its head. Because this drunk Trump actually knows more of the scriptures than the wee guy beside him has ever imagined anybody could. And the drunk Trump starts ministering to the 17-year-old. And so later in the book, when the 17-year-old has a few issues, he doesn't go to his youth pastor, though we have two acts in the house, or one nearly acts and one act today, and they were probably okay to go to he actually goes to the park because he knows that the one with the biblical insight that can help him with this issue is the drunk Trump down there. But we would have kept him away. He's blind Bartimaeus. But we would have kept him away. Why was he drunken in the park without biblical knowledge? Was it his own fault? Or is it the disciples that keep them away? Is it the community that won't let them close to Jesus? The Jeremiah passage that Mo read at the start, <clears throat> one of the, um, the, 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 the websites I go to to preach through the lectionary suggested that maybe the preacher this week could ask the congregation why all these people are going to return eventually. Who kept them away? Who sent them away? Who are the people we're sending away? Who are the people out there that are not coming here because the disciples have kept them from Jesus. Who are we holding back? Who are the people that would love to come to church but don't feel this would be a community they would be accepted into? Who are the people who were part of church and something happened and they're no longer a part of that church? And I'm not even getting as far as blind Bartimaeus. But what Jesus does in this story is interesting. He doesn't go through the crowd to blind Bartimaeus. He says to the community of Fitzroy around him, the disciples, he says, you go and bring him to me. You go and bring him to me. And little do they know when they bring him to them that they're going to stand aghast as this son of impurity gives them the insight into who Jesus is all along. Where are we in this story? I've been wrestling all week with where I am in this story. Am I blind Bartimaeus with all the insight? Am I James and John wanting position? Am I the rich young ruler in the chapter just before that who's trying to keep all these things but still lack one thing? We've been through there. 
Am I part of the community, or is it just me that's holding people back from coming into a community that should be grace, mercy, orientated so that people like blind Bartimaeus and all the sons and daughters of impurity across this city and this country should feel the one place I can go on a Sunday morning, the one place that I will feel welcome. Am I holding the blind Bartimaeus' back? Where am I in this story? Who am I in this story? Lord, when you ask me what I want you to do for me, what is my response? Let's pray. Lord, give us insight and wisdom and knowledge. In the short term, just tell us where we are in this story. Which one are we? Who are we? Are we thwarting those who would want to come and maybe have more biblical insight than us? but we're keeping them away because it wouldn't seem right or good or that you might not be interested in them at this stage of their journey or whatever? Are we James and John looking for position and a back to the future ending? Have we a hand and a pot of gold as well as a hand in your side? Are we blind Bartimaeus willing to need just that sense of insight and seeing? Are we Solomon who asks for wisdom and knowledge above everything else the world has to offer. By your spirit, Lord, lead us to who we are in the story. And then let us hear that question yet again. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And help us with the answer. In Jesus' name, amen.